In January earlier this year, Julie and I went through the task of determining which, of our, which pieces of furniture and clothing were going to be moving from Kansas City here to Columbus. It was my job to make sure all the furniture that was going to go to the garage sale or be donated to the homeless ministry that we supported would be moved from the basement and the other floors of the house out to, to the garage. Well, I started in the basement and I found some boxes back in the corner of the basement that said letters and notes and cards. And I forgot all about the furniture I was supposed to move and I started going through all those letters. I found one from Julie that she wrote to me back when we were in college. We went to college together in Eugene, Oregon, but I was from San Francisco, and so even though we were in school together the first few years, every summer I went back to San Francisco, and I found one of those letters that Julie had written me from Oregon. I'm not going to tell you what it said either, <laughs> except for the last three words, and you can guess, I love you. And what really intrigued me was underneath each of those words, there were three underlines, not an underline all the way across, but underneath each word, I, underline, 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 love, underline, 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 you, underline, underline, underline. And I just wondered, what exactly does that mean? What's she trying to tell me? What's she trying to communicate? I, I couldn't afford, remember how long distance calls used to cost a lot of money? I couldn't afford to make a call. She couldn't call me. So I spent the whole summer wondering, what's really going on here? What's this is about? And I read it, and I reread it, and I tried to parse every single word. In fact, I took that letter and folded it up and put it inside my wallet. Carried it with me all summer. Plenty of room there because there was no money in my wallet, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, there's something about getting a, a letter from one you love. That, that seems to carry a great deal of, of weight and have, have a strong effect on us. We, we read them and reread them, try to understand, hear the person's voice as perhaps they were, as, as if they were speaking to us. It's almost as, as though they've given us a, a little bit of their heart. You know, I, I, I know, I know. We live in a world of emails and texts and Facebook messages and, and tweets and, and all of that. Maybe letter writing is anachronistic and something that we've just forgotten about or don't really care about anymore. But I, I, think, I think there's something about a handwritten note that we ought to revive, you know? Something about writing a note to a friend is to say, hey, I was thinking about you. I prayed for you. I love you. What is it about that? I got another note earlier this year. This one came from my mom. She sent me a knit cap, you know, that you wear in the wintertime, although today it feels like it's 75 degrees outside. But eventually, I'm sure I'm going to wear this cap. It has the San Francisco Giants logo. That's my favorite team. But more important than the cap she sent me was a little note she stuck on the inside. And remember, I'm proud of you. That's a pretty sweet thing to get. My mom has beautiful penmanship. And it just meant so much. Just to see that one little line, remember, I'm proud of you. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica to let them know that he loves them and he's proud of them. This really is a love letter from pastor to parish to say, don't forget who you are. Remember all that we've struggled, all that we taught you about. I want you to know that I love you and I'm proud of you. Now, there's a part of this letter where he uses his own life as an example. And it sounds like he might be bragging a little bit, like he's saying, hey, look at me. I'm a good Christian boy. Now act and live like I do too. It sounds like that, but what he's really saying is almost like, imagine that I would write a letter to, to Deb and to Jim. 
And I'd say, Devin, Jim, this is the way I'm going to behave, and this is the way I'm going to live and act as your colleague and co-worker in Christ, and I expect that you'll live in the same way. And then what we do is we hold each other accountable. It's not about, look at me, I'm better, try to be like that. It's really a way of saying all three of us are on the same page together. Now let's be sure that we practice and live our lives in this way. That's what Paul's saying to his church in Thessalonica. You've seen me and Sylvanus and Timothy, those are his friends. We want you to remember how it is you're to, to behave. Actions matter. What we say we believe should be reflected in the way we live. In verse 12, he says, we, and that's Sylvanus and Timothy, but these are Paul's words. We appealed to you, encouraged you, and pleaded with you to live lives worthy of the God who is calling you. Appealed, encouraged, and pleaded with you. Because this way of life matters. He's saying, don't forget who you are. Now go and live that way. One of my favorite professors in seminary was a man named Fred Norris. Dr. Norris was brilliant, PhD from Yale, uh, well-respected, highly respected in his scholarly field, known for, for the, being the author of many, many very dense and technical uh, journals, quoted often within his his area of expertise, but, but Dr. Norris was just the sweetheart of a guy. Had this big laugh, just this bold, boisterous kind of personality. Anywhere he went on campus, you knew where, knew where Norris was because you could hear him laugh from anywhere. And he loved in his classes to use stories to help us understand these difficult theological concepts. I took a class with him, hardest class I've ever taken, even in my doctoral work, much harder. Hardest class of anything I've ever done called Christian Social Ethics. We had to read an ethicist named Alistair McIntyre, a brilliant writer, but very dense, very hard to understand. I think I've read his book now five times. I might finally be getting it. But Norris would explain it by telling stories. He'd say, boys and girls, here's what's going on in this, in this, in this part of the chapter we've been reading this, this week. One time he told us a story about when he was a little boy. He said that every day that he would leave for school, his dad would be there at the door, hand him his book bag and say, now, Freddie, don't you forget you're a Norris. Act like it. And what did that mean? Well, Norrises are kind and polite and gracious and loving, and they do the work they're assigned, so you better, you better live that way every day. Here's your books, Freddie. Don't you forget, you're a Norris. When, when, when Freddie was around fourth, maybe fifth grade, he told us in class, he heard a, a troubling story. He was in the kitchen having a snack. His parents were in the other room talking about Grandpa Norris who was a traveling itinerant preacher, kind of a traveling evangelist. Remember how we used to have a lot of those? Who would go from city to city to inspire people and such, and they'd take in offerings to help support the ministry, that sort of thing. Turned out Grandpa Norris quit the ministry because one too many of the offerings made it into his own personal pockets. He had to quit the ministry because he slept one too many times with someone that he wasn't married to, and that kind of got him in some trouble. Freddie was really upset. He loved his grandpa. He couldn't believe this had happened. And so the next day, he went to his dad. And he said, Dad, I, I overheard what you were saying about, about grandpa, and it really bothers me. Well, why did he behave like that? His dad said, Freddie, he forgot. He forgot that he's a Norris. Sometimes it really is that simple, isn't it? Sometimes it's simply a matter of remembering who we are, what we believe, and how that shapes the way we live and why. Sometimes it's just that basic. Don't forget who you are. Be the one that you know you were created to be and let the rest of your life fall in place as you go along. 
Well, this sweet little letter from Paul to his church in Thessalonica is the earliest known evidence of Christianity in the Bible. There's the Gospels and there's the book of Acts. There are other letters from Paul and from Peter and from John and others. The book of Revelation. But the earliest, the oldest writing in the Bible about early Christians is this little letter to the church in Thessalonica. And they tell us that the primary feature of the early church was their love for each other. And there's also this sort of disarming awareness of, 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 of the presence of God, of the name of God. Uh, Beverly Roberts Gaventa is a very good New Testament scholar. She urges her readers to read this text and understand when they do, it's sort of recapturing the, the name of God for us. You know, sometimes we, oh, maybe it's just me, but sometimes we find it easier to think of God in intellectual terms rather than intimate ones. God is the effervescence force that carries the universe forward in in its ever-evolving pattern. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really good, doesn't it? Gaventa Roberts is basically saying to her readers, instead of getting so caught up in our intellectual understanding, instead see that the love you feel in your heart is named God, and the love that you want to give away to the world is named God. And going ahead and naming that allows God's primary gift of love to guide us. Sometimes, like I said, it's really that simple, that basic, that clear, that true. It's what Paul was trying to get across to them 2,000 years ago. Basically, he wants them to see that the simplest acts of love and grace, done without fanfare or notice, just simply given to the world, are the ones where the seeds for hope are planted and something new can begin. You know the name Bishop Tutu, I I hope. He's the Anglican priest who was so important in helping South Africa move away from the scourge of apartheid. He was asked by an interviewer not long ago, why is it, uh, Bishop, that you're an Anglican and not a Methodist or, or a Baptist? Most of the blacks who converted back in those days to Christianity became Methodist or Baptist, and yet you became an Anglican. Why is that? He said, let me tell you a story. When I was a little boy, my mother and I, we were walking down the sidewalk, and there was a rule in apartheid South Africa that said, if you were black and there was a white person coming towards you, you'd have to step off of the sidewalk, down into the gutter, regardless of how messy or dirty it might be, and offer deference to the white person walking on past. We were walking down the sidewalk one day, and there was a a tall white man in a black suit with a black hat. He was walking toward us. The closer we got, my mother slowed down even more. She began to step off the curb down into the gutter, but before she could, this man, this white man in the black suit with a hat, he stepped off down into the gutter. As my mother and I walked past, he tipped his hat to her in an act of deference. I couldn't believe it, Tutu said. I was shocked. I'd never seen a white person behave like this. As we got past, I said, Mommy, why did that man act like that, that white man? Why did he do that? And she said, that man was an Anglican priest, a man of God. And I decided right then and there, Bishop Tutu said, that I too wanted to be an Anglican priest. And more than that, a man of God. You see how beautiful that is? In the simple act of stepping off, deferring to another, hope was given to the world. Apartheid was driven from the land. There's an important question in that story that I just told. It's the singular word, why? 
Too often in the church and in business and in politics and education and the rest, too often though, especially as far as I'm concerned in the church, we plan our ministries with what and how when we forget about why. We get very concerned about looking slick and coming off just right, just so, and we get it all done because what and how dominate our conversation, and we forget about why do we do this. Simon Sinek is the one who helped me see this. He says in his book, start with why. That's the question that matters. Listen to his words. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Did you hear that? Not what you do, but why you do it. And what you do simply proves what you believe. Right now I would dare say that the world is longing for an answer to the why question. Longing for a sense of hope, for something to give their hearts and minds to, to see us become the people that God created us to be. Last week I read an article in the New York Times, it was on Friday morning early. It was written by the, the Times bureau chief in Houston. He was reflecting on the World Series and how the World Series had helped Houston take a few steps toward recovery from the devastating hurricane that still continues to cause so many issues in southeastern Texas. And so we reflected on, on, on the Astros and their win in the World Series. You may not know this, I think Jim knows this. All theological concepts can be found in baseball. <laughs> is, is this true, Jim? Yeah, Jim knows. Jim knows it's true. Thank you, thank you brother, for nodding your head. He said their, their city is, a, is, a, is awash in anxiety. He noted that Houston is longing, longing to a return to normalcy. He says that in the, in, the, in the Astros' win over the Dodgers, they were given a moment, maybe an hour, maybe a day or two, maybe a week of hope that they too could get through whatever it is. And then he closed his article with these words, we are all longing we are all longing on a large scale. Maybe there's an earthquake that needs to shake your heart loose. Maybe there's a storm that needs to grab hold of your soul. Maybe there's something that needs to come and take hold of you to wake us up, to wake you and me up to, to the life that God's calling us toward. Paul describes his work as a parent. The, 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 the language there is in the masculine. In the, in the original Greek, the word that's translated in your text today, parent, would actually be father. And you can imagine a father guiding his children. He sees the church as his children. He's guiding them and instructing them. It's a beautiful image. Probably should have had some other parts of the text read from earlier in the letter because there's some other pieces there where Paul shockingly, almost surprisingly, uses feminine imagery for the way he leads the church. He describes himself at one point as a mother, and another he uses the term a wet nurse. I'm like a wet nurse who nurtured and nourished you and brought you into the world. Do you see how amazing that is? 2,000 years ago, no man would have lowered himself, because men were in the top, the top of the hierarchy. No man would have lowered himself to, to behave and describe themselves as a woman, but yet here is the Apostle Paul becoming vulnerable, stepping away from that authoritative role instead of taking on the form of, of one who cares and nurtures like a mother would. It reminds me of what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians. For he did not, for Jesus Christ did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form 
of a doulos in Greek, of a servant we translated. A better word is slave. Took on the form of a slave. There's something freeing about that, about caring for the other, serving the other, doing whatever you can to help the other. Something freeing that actually gives us courage in that moment to do what needs to be done. To take on the form of a caregiver, of a servant. There are some leaders today who insist, it seems constantly, on telling us how smart they are or how successful and rich they are, and it seems to be an over, 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 over plain theme. But the Apostle Paul wants none of that. He points out his own ethical behavior, not as a way of saying, oh, look at me, but rather as a way of saying, you and I, you and I, all of us together are in this. Let's hold each other to accountability. That is an authority that comes not from bragging, but from an honest way of living. This is so astounding, really. Even more so then. What Paul is doing is he's cultivating a family-style relationship with the church. You've seen it before. I'm sure of it. Back in the, the week right before I went to my first year of college, my freshman year of college, was in church on a Sunday. I was going to drive a couple days later with my dad up to Eugene, Oregon, where I was starting school. After church was over, I was met at the back by this longtime member of the church, longtime member of the board, kind of somebody that was a kind of an irritant to my dad, who was the pastor, an irritant to my dad and his work and leadership there. But he always liked me, so I didn't, it was fine with me. Mr. Forbes is his name, Bob Forbes. He came up to me and he shook my hand. And when he shook my hand, I could feel there was something in the palm of his hand. It felt like a piece of paper. He held my hand tight, though, and he said, Glenn, I want you to know before you go to school that we kind of think of you as our as, as, our, as the grandson of our church. And, and what you're feeling right now in your hand is a little gift from me for you to take your new friends out for pizza. When you get there, make a couple of friends, go buy them some pizza. And just remember that your church loves you and we want you to know that. Open my hand. There was a $20 bill in my hand. I got to tell you, that was the most money I'd ever held in my hand ever at that point. Back then, 20 bucks could get you three or four pizzas. Now, maybe a couple of donuts and a coffee, but that's another story. <laughs> you, you've seen it before. Julie and I have been going to many women's guilds, many of the friendship circles. We've been invited for breakfasts and lunches and dinners, and we're having to walk 20,000 steps a day to burn off all these calories. It's great fun, though. We're having a marvelous time. Everyone's being so gracious. But almost every single one of these that we go to, someone comes up to me, and they, they kind of look around a little bit, you know, and they have a hushed tone to their voice, and they say, Glenn, I... I don't know how to tell you this, but you know, first let me just say, I love the church, I, I love the music ministry, I love the beauty of our liturgy, I love the, the way we bring our minds and, 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 and our intellect to everything that we do and the way we touch the heart, but I, I just got to tell you, and they, their voice gets lower, you know, and again, they just kind of get softer and say, this is my church. These people in this circle, these women in this friendship guild, in this, in this women's guild, this is my church. When my dad died, these were the ones who showed up and loved me. When my, when my son was taken too soon, it was my circle who cared for me. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, they'll say, but this is my church. And I say to them, amen, thank you, Jesus. Of course it is. Of course it is. That's the close family that Paul wanted to form. You know, as I wrote those, these notes and, and thought of that story, I recalled this quote from Philip Gully, a Quaker pastor and writer. 
He wonders, what would the church look like if meeting human needs were more important than maintaining institutions? More important to meet human needs than to maintain the institutions. Needs here, needs across the street, across the city, around the globe. What would the church look like? I recall a time when I was leading another church. We had a board meeting. The mission and vision plan had been set forward. We knew what we were going to do for the next 18 to 24 months. All of it was in place. Now it came time for the vote, but there was a technical Robert's Rules of Order thing. All of a sudden, an argument erupted, and we argued for 20 or 30 minutes about this technicality and Robert's Rules, and I could feel it. The people in the room could feel it. We were about to say no to the mission and vision and plan that we'd worked so hard to get in place. Finally, Gordon Dalrymple, who's this great old saint in the church, he's in heaven now, he stood up. Tall guy, 75 years old, but still strong, powerful presence. He said, sisters and brothers... The wind of God is blowing through our congregation and we're about to kill it by getting caught up in this stuff. Let's open our sails and let God's wind take us wherever we need to go next. Somebody pounded the gavel, we took a vote and it passed unanimously. It's a beautiful story. Because sometimes we get so caught up in, in thinking that we have to own all this, control all this, whatever, when it's the very spirit of God that wants to come and take hold of your life and mine and lead us to something new. Today, tomorrow, now. At the end of the day, we cannot forget who we are. For God's love, as Robert Capon used to say so often, for God's love is for the least, the last, the lost, the little, and the dead. There's no one outside of the love of God. I'm going to close with this. It's about a young preacher. He was in his 20s, late 20s, finished seminary, wanted to, to spend some time studying other churches before he began his own work in ministry. And so he spent the whole summer going from church to church to church, well-known churches where he could learn from them. In one particular church, as he described it, it kind of sounded like us. There was a lot of complexity to the church, multiple campuses, serious financials that had to be understood in a careful way, beautiful liturgy, a complex theology, but he loved the worship service. He appreciated the preaching and the music and all the rest. So afterwards, he determined to stay and, and talk to the preacher at the back door to the senior minister and let him know, I really appreciated the service and your sermon today. He was last in line, and there was a woman right in front of him. She was clearly upset. Her hands were shaking. There were tears on her face. She said to the senior minister as this young pastor stood nearby, she said to him, my daddy died. He was not a member of the church. If he'd known he was going to die, I'm sure he would have joined the church. I'm so worried about my father. Can you, what are you going to do? What can we do? Is there something? I don't know. I'm so worried. It was, she seemed to be emotionally, maybe even mentally troubled. The wise old pastor, though, he took a hold of her hand and he said, it sounds like your father was a good man. I did not know him, but it sounds like he was a wonderful person. She shook her head, yes, yes, he was. The wise old pastor said, in this church, on some occasions, we have a ritual that we practice where we bring in folks who've passed away into the life of our church, and we make them full members. Would you like me to practice that ritual with you right now? She, she stood a little taller, and she said, uh, uh, yes, I would very much. They held hands. He prayed right there with her in the, in the narthex of the church. He prayed with her and said, Lord, thank you for this woman, for her love of her father, for the way he loved her. She's been a blessing to him, and he's been a blessing to her. We're grateful for that. Now, Lord, I implore you, 
to give this man membership in our church. Bring him into the arms of your gracious love. Amen. The woman suddenly stood straight. She wiped the tears off her face. The preacher said to her, your father now is a member in full standing in this church, and he's even now very much in the arms of God's gracious and never-ending love. She gave the pastor a huge hug and left a changed person. The young preacher who was there to study, he came up next in line. He thanked the preacher for his, the pastor, senior minister for his sermon. And then he said, he asked him a question. He said, do you really have a ritual in this church for making dead people members? And the old pastor said, no, but it seemed like a good idea, don't you think? <laughs> yes. Yes. It was a good idea because the love of God is given to the last, the lost, the least, the little, and the dead. That's why Paul writes to us, live lives worthy of the love we have received, the love we've already known. Do we have room in our hearts? Do you have room in your heart right now for the love that God wants to give to you? Do you have the courage you need in your soul to let that love not only stay there, but be given away to the world? Do you have the room for love? Do you have the courage to give it away? You do. You do. I'm certain of it. I've seen it. Don't forget.